If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hey everyone, it's great to be back with you on Behind the Knife with the Minimally Invasive Surgery Team from the University of Washington. I'm Mike Wykamp, and as usual, I'm joined by Drs. Nicole White, Nick Citrullo, and Andrew Wright for our third General Review podcast. For today's episode, we're going to do a deeper dive into a topic that we just scratched the surface of in our first General Review podcast, the cost of robotic surgery. To frame this conversation, we're going to discuss a 2021 British Journal of Surgery article entitled Clinical Outcomes and Cost of Robotic Ventral Hernia Repair, a Systematic Review by Dr. Linda Yi and her colleagues. Dr. White, would you mind walking our listeners through how this review was done? Of course. Dr. Yi and her colleagues performed a thorough review of the contemporary literature pertaining to robotic ventral hernia repair and cost, focusing on studies that included a direct comparison to either open ventral hernia repair, laparoscopic ventral hernia repair, or both. Their review yielded almost 3,600 articles, which were evaluated using the PRISMA guidelines for systemic reviews. And after screening content by title and abstract, and excluding things like case series, studies with overlapping patient populations, studies that did not contain a comparison to laparoscopic or open surgery, the authors were left with 25 articles to be included in their review. Of these 20. Two were observational studies, and three were randomized controlled trials, all of which contained cost comparisons between robotic and either open or laparoscopic ventral hernia repair, some of which also contained clinical outcomes comparisons. Amongst the 22 observational studies, the review team also delineated between those that used propensity score matching and those that did not. Perfect. As a part of their evaluation, the authors also performed rigorous assessments of each included article's risk of bias using the Cochrane Risk of Bias tool for RCTs and the Robbins 1 system for observational trials. The detailed results of these bias assessments are a little outside the focus of our discussion today, except to say that they were performed, which demonstrated a wide range of susceptibility to sources of bias and extent of bias. However, of note, as part of the, uh, this process, one of the three randomized controlled trials was deemed to be at an unacceptably high risk of bias and was therefore excluded from their final analysis. If I can make a note about bias, there's a lot of emerging literature on conflict of interest. I think it's important that having an interaction with industry isn't necessarily a bad thing, and as surgeons, we need to work with industry to advance our field. Uh, And I also think it's important that the RCT that was excluded from this paper due to bias wasn't excluded due to industry conflict of interest, but instead due to methodological limitations of the study. So it was a methodologic problem rather than a conflict of interest problem. Uh, That said, there is evidence that papers with undisclosed conflict of interest 
tend to show results that favor the company or the industry that's involved. And also that the surgical literature is rife with undisclosed interest, uh, un undisclosed conflict of interest. So I think we just have to be careful when we're looking at papers to see who is publishing them and what sort of uh, industry relations they might have. Thanks, Dr. Ray. Uh, Dr. Citrullo, can you bring us through what the authors found as far as their clinical outcomes before we dive into the cost analysis? The review authors divided the clinical outcomes by three basic categories, intraoperative, which include case duration, intraoperative complication rate, and requirement for transfusion. Category two was short-term postoperative complications, where they discussed length of stay, SSI and SSO rate, readmission mortality, and quote-unquote total complications. And then thirdly, long-term or functional postoperative outcomes like pain and hernia recurrence. As my friend Dr. White mentioned, they compared robotic and laparoscopic or robotic and open ventral hernia repairs. They used the GRADE framework for literature evaluation, which classifies the total strength of available evidence as high, moderate, low, or very low certainty. Specifically, when looking at the papers that were comparing robotic to open repair, the team concluded that there was one moderate evidence that operative room time was higher when using the robot, but length of stay was shorter. Two, claims of robotic superiority with respect to transfusion requirements or decreased total complications were rated as low or very low certainty. And three, that all other studied outcomes were deemed equivalent between robotic and open. However, the, uh, <clears throat> again, the certainty of evidence for these measures ranged from low to very low. Now, when looking at the robotic versus laparoscopic papers, the authors determined that the literature demonstrated a high degree of certainty that robotic repairs have longer operative times than laparoscopic, but notably, this was the only metric in the entire review to achieve high certainty designation. All other intraoperative, short-term, and long-term outcomes were deemed equivalent between the two minimally invasive platforms, with levels of certainty ranging from moderate to very low. Perfect. Thanks, Dr. Strulo. So moving forward, uh, we'll only really reference the outcomes data in the context of what we're really here to talk about, which is cost. Dr. Wright, could you give us a quick overview of the author's cost analysis? Sure. Um, first of all, the authors deserve a lot of credit. This is a really difficult paper to write. Uh, it's a challenging task because the data is really heterogeneous and the papers are heterogeneous that they have to synthesize. Uh, to give you a sense of what I mean, uh, in order to conduct the review, the authors had to navigate studies and combine studies that have different sources and types of cost data. Uh, so they, the cost may come from hospital accounting systems or OR utilization data or administrative databases, all of which look different. Uh, the type of, of cost, whether they're mean costs or direct costs or total costs, um, the type of patient matching. Um, and I think it is also interesting that the type of currency, they converted all this into British pounds. And as we all know, that the currency rates are, are rapidly changing and how that might impact uh, things as well. So uh, with all that in mind, after evaluating the, uh, all the available studies um, using these grade criteria, uh, they concluded essentially that robotic uh, ventral hernia repair was equivalent in cost to open and more expensive than laparoscopic. Uh, but that the evidence level of certainty was low uh, for both of those. Um, but again, uh, that's really looking at cost, and I think we'll come back to this later, not necessarily about value. Thanks, Dr. Wright. There's certainly a lot to unpack there. Uh, I think the place to start is by going over the sources and types of cost data that you referenced uh, in this work. 
uh, to get a better understanding of um, in a topic with multiple randomized control trials and more than a dozen observational trials, how we can only muster this quote unquote low certainty conclusion. Uh, Dr. White, can you help us understand the sources and types of cost data that Dr. Wright laid out for us? Definitely. So as Dr. Wright alluded to, the mechanisms by which cost data were collected in the included studies varied widely and often relied on external administrative databases rather than being collected by research teams themselves. Some of the main type of costs reported includes direct costs, which these are all the costs directly attributed to the procedure. These are the things your patient's being charged for, like OR time, instruments, inpatient postoperative charges, postoperative clinic visits, etc. Total cost is direct plus indirect costs, and the um, indirect costs are things that the patient aren't directly charged for. So these are things such as overhead or amortized cost of purchasing the reusable equipment required to do the procedure, like the laparoscopic equipment, the endoscopy, the robot tower, uh, things like that. OR costs include per-minute cost of operating room time. So wheels in, wheels out. Disposable instruments costs um, and things similar to that. And then we have cost ratios. Investigators take raw cost data from each platform and divide them such that the results are reported as ratio of robotic cost to other platform cost. So it's not extremely straightforward or cohesive. Furthermore, some of the observational studies performed adjustments for things like geographic location, patient comorbidities, while many left these potential confounders unaddressed. To give you a sense of how much the choice of the cost metric metric can influence the results, the reported cost estimates for robotic ventral hernia repair amongst the studies included in this review ranged from 5,234 British pounds to 73,446. So there's a very big cost differentiation. Thanks, Dr. White. We'd like to take a minute to share a great opportunity to contribute to surgical education research and make a few bucks doing it. A team at the Brook Army Medical Center is working to better define proficiency-based metrics for competency in commonly performed general surgery procedures. If you are a PGY-4 or 5 general surgery resident or a practicing surgeon who performs robotic cholecystectomies or inguinal hernia repairs, take a minute to reach out to the study team for more information and how you could be compensated up to $400 first recording and submitting videos of you performing surgery. All you have to do is check out the show notes for the contact information. Dominate the day. On a related note to your point about confounding, the next thing I wanted to cover is the differences between the studies comparing the robot to open repairs with those comparing a robot against the laparoscopic approach, particularly with regard to the complexity of cases being performed in each. As this group knows well, not all ventral hernias are created equally. Dr. Strulo, can you give us some perspective on this? Yeah, Mike, I think that's a very, very important point, and I'm glad you brought it up. <clears throat> it's laudable that the study is attempting to draw conclusions about clinical outcomes or costs between different surgical approaches, trying to minimize confounding through randomization or propensity score matching. It's critical for us to point out that most of the studies comparing the robot against laparoscopy were simply looking at uh, intraperitoneal underlay mesh or IPUM repairs. The paper refers to them as IPOM, but that 
term hurts my soul. <laughs> so we will call it IPUM and IPUM minus. So it's important to recognize that that is not what most people are using the robotic platform for when doing uh, ventral hernia repair. And then when they were comparing the robotic versus open cases, the robotic cases tended to be in the more complex uh, positioning of the mesh, such as retromuscular or a um, retroperitoneal, or excuse me, a preperitoneal repair. All this is really to say that, like many other surgical disciplines that are using robotic platforms and robotic technology, the abdominal wall reconstruction population is heterogeneous, and that research looking into cost effectiveness of a treatment strategy need to take care to avoid overstating the results beyond specific patient populations that are being examined. So comparing IPUM to IPUM between platforms is fair, but comparing the potential value of a laparoscopic IPUM versus a robotic transverse abdominus release repair is not as straightforward as some papers make it out to be. That's a great segue into a point that Dr. Yi and her colleagues made in their discussion about the comparative cost component of their review, that even among studies that met criteria for inclusion, that the majority of studies failed to properly define their cost measurement techniques according to published cost reporting guidelines, and further commented that no methodologically sound formal cost-effective analysis has been done on this topic. Dr. Wright, it certainly doesn't seem that the low certainty of the conclusions in this topic are for lack of uh, the field trying. Uh, can you help our listeners understand why the high certainty cost-effective uh, analysis studies are so hard to come by? Yeah, this is really the heart of the issue. And we touched on this a couple months ago in our first episode about the robot. Um, most studies have really looked only at cost data. And it's okay if something costs more if it provides value either to the patient or the surgeon or the healthcare system. Um, and that's, I think, more difficult to measure and uh, takes a little bit more thought. Um, so the review, this paper we're discussing, has really nicely highlighted how challenging it is to interpret cost data. Um, but the, the, the cost reporting guidelines are really inconsistently followed, and um, it, it really introduces a lot of bias and uncertainty into these studies. Um, so, so while several studies in this review have looked at both costs and outcomes, as the authors point out, none were really formal cost-effectiveness studies. And I'm not sure that most people know exactly what a cost-effectiveness study is, so we will put a reference in our show notes to a, an article, uh, Cost-Effectiveness Analysis in Surgery by Drs. Finlayson and Berkmeyer that, that um, are really experts in this field and lay out what cost-effectiveness looks like. Uh, and that really includes cost measurement, uh, through some combination of both the medical costs, in other words, the hospital costs, um, and the non-medical costs. So what does it cost to the patient in terms of things like missed work and travel and supplies and all of the things that with, with surgeons we not, don't necessarily think about but directly impact the patient? Then we also have to look at some value of the effectiveness. So uh, quality-adjusted life years or, or patient-related outcome measures that show uh, how patients actually do after surgery. And then you have to develop that cost-to-effect ratio that allow you to uh, build head-to-head -head comparisons between treatment options. That seems straightforward enough. So, Dr. White, why is it that none of the 20-some observational studies included in this systematic review did this for robotic ventral hernia repair? Well, I think it depends on what you're comparing the robot against in your cost-effective analysis. For example, 
I think there probably is a reasonable motivation to perform a formal cost-effectiveness analysis, robotic and open surgery. However, comparing a robotic against a laparoscopic technique gets interesting. As many have commented, including us in our first podcast, while there are differences between open and MIS platforms related to intraoperative technique, intensity of inpatient care required, and postoperative recovery in general. Robotic surgery essentially is laparoscopic surgery and therefore routine operations, things like IPUM, inguinal hernia, cholecystectomy, etc., where, outco- where outcomes are generally excellent and complication rates low, it's probably unreasonable to expect differences in traditional metrics of treatment effectiveness, like quality of adjusted life years. So, such an analysis would come down to cost. And while the authors of this review suggested that the current state of the evidence suggests that the robot might be more expensive, Dr. Citrullo is going to tell us why the truth might be more complicated. The first easy point is that there's issues comparing a technologically mature platform, such as laparoscopically laparoscopy, against an emerging technology such as a robotic platform, uh, which seems to have yet to plateau with respect to market penetration, cost of the technology, and over time, these things tend to reduce uh, as the technology is used. Additionally, the current robotic platform is a monopoly, and this is going to be changing in the coming years as more and more companies are developing different robotic platforms such as Medtronic and Amazon. To address the second point, it's a little bit more nuanced. While minimally invasive surgery and hernia surgery tend to be ahead of the game when it comes to measuring non-medical costs associated with their operations, with metrics such as missed days of work, the benefit of the robot may be in expanding access to minimally invasive surgery and hernia repairs via allowing surgeons who uh, did not do a ton of laparoscopic surgery in their training to learn a new technology that has a shorter learning curve, therefore allowing them to achieve proficiency at a faster rate in a minimally invasive approach. This also will reduce travel times where patients can find a minimally invasive specialist closer to home instead of having to travel to major centers. Here at University of Washington, we feel that uh, quite explicitly, we have a number of patients who are traveling from Alaska, Montana, Idaho, out of state to see us for some of these more complex repairs that they don't have options closer to home. And the impact on patients' life simply to come for one preoperative visit is significant. It's these sorts of costs that are virtually impossible to measure retrospectively, especially when looking at uh, hospital-based charges and challenging to study in general, which is why the current state of literature is so disjointed and limited. Thanks, Dr. Strulo. So I think that brings us to what should we do about this? Are there studies that we should be doing next? Dr. Wright, as someone whose opinion about the robot has evolved over time, do you think that there's a way to design a study that might settle the debate once and for all on the cost-effectiveness of robotic surgery? That's a multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar question, and I think um, there's really not a single study that would satisfy that. Um, But I do think there are some things that we can do as uh, academics and researchers that can best uh, move the ball forward in determining where robotics might fit in. Uh, I think the first thing is to recognize that we are in a system that has limited financial resources, and we have to be good stewards of those resources. Um, 
The most important thing, I think, is really to look not just at cost, but also at patient-reported outcomes. So are we impacting quality of life, reducing those things like travel costs and and, um, missed days of work that really impact the value of our care? We also have to look at case migration. In other words, are we moving just a laparoscopic eye pump to a robotic eye pump, which probably isn't cost-effective? Or are we moving a patient from a robotic uh, uh, IPOM, or sorry, from moving patient from, a, from an open IPOM to a robotic preperitoneal repair, which might have some pretty good cost effectiveness? And then we need to have sort of a more consistent way of reporting and analyzing costs. Unfortunately, every hospital actually looks at costs differently, and it makes it really hard to compare. Uh, and then you can take all of that and really build some complex modeling to really um, help guide our decision making both on a system level about where we deploy robots and then on an individual patient level on what kind of approaches we might offer to a a clinical problem. Thanks, everyone. I think that's as good a spot as any to try and wrap things up. So I'll hand it over to Dr. White to try and put together some take-home points for you all. When it comes to evaluating the cost effectiveness of robotic surgery, there are a few key points to consider. Number one, it's important to consider what types of cost data are reported and not reported, as this can introduce bias or potentially fundamentally change results. Number two, while randomization or propensity matching are useful tools for comparing treatments, it's important to limit conclusions from these studies to the population's directly examines. Third, While many studies include cost data, formal cost-effectiveness analysis that calculate cost-effectiveness ratios to compared treatment options are the gold standard. And even these studies are only as good as the data they're based on and should be evaluated critically. Lastly, robotic-assisted surgery is increasing in hernia and dozens of other surgical subspecialties. It's our responsibility as surgeons to ensure that we are delivering cost-conscious care. Thanks, everyone. As always, really appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise with our listeners. That's all we have for this episode. Look forward to next time. And until then, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.